0: Alright, so lesson four. Just remember that uh, thus far in the story, remember if you're not reading the book, that's perfectly fine. If you never plan to read the book, that's perfectly fine. We still want you to get a lot out of this. What we've seen so far is a man who we find out his name originally was Graceless. That man has been awakened to his danger. He has fled the city of destruction at the command of the gospel. He's running toward the light which lies in proximity to the wicket gate. He has a book, his name now is Christian, he has a book which warned him of his danger and is telling him of the glories of the celestial city toward which he is bound. Initially, we saw, uh, over the last couple of weeks, he was accompanied by two companions, obstinate and pliable, but both of them, at different times, have turned back now and he is continuing alone And most recently, what we saw last week is that he fell into the slough of Despond and was unable to extricate himself from the despair that overtook him there. He met a character named Help, and Help lifted him out and showed him the steps to avoid falling into that bog once again. And so this next part of the story, he encounters Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And I will tell you that this part of the story in particular is easily misinterpreted by antinomians. Um, An antinomian is someone who is against the law. Anti, against, namos, the law. Uh, the, The antinomian does not believe that the law of God applies to him in the same way or to the same extent that the scriptures would indicate It does, and many times antinomians, as they read this section of the story, will misunderstand the issue that's being portrayed here. The danger is legalism, and you'll see that as the story develops, but legalism in this case, Bunyan shows us, is not a temptation to substitute obedience for grace. The temptation of legalism is to disobey God by seeking an easier path than the gospel and the cross demand of us. That's what legalism is, and I'm going to show you that as we continue today. Now, let's get into the story. Now, as Christian was walking solitary by himself, he espied one afar off coming over the field to meet him, and their hap was to meet just as they were crossing the way of each other. The gentleman's name that met him was Mr. Worldly Wiseman. He dwelt in the town of Carnal Policy, a very great town. And also hard by from whence Christian came. In other words, kind of adjacent to. This man then meeting with Christian and having some inkling of him... For Christian setting forth from the city of destruction was much noised abroad, not only in the town where he dwelt, but also it began to be the town talk in some other places. In other words, Worldly Wiseman's already heard of what has transpired so far. Mr. Worldly Wiseman, therefore, having some guess of him by beholding his laborious going, by observing his sighs and groans and the like, began thus to enter into some talk with Christian. Mr. Worldly Wiseman said, how now, good fellow, whither away after this burdened manner. Where are you going, right? Why are you carrying this big weight on your back? Christian said, I tell you, sir, I am going to yonder wicket gate before me, for there, as I am informed, I shall be put into a way to be rid of my heavy burden. I'm going to finally get this thing off my back. Mr. Worldly Wiseman said, I would advise thee then that thou with all speed get thyself rid of thy burden, for thou wilt never be settled in thy mind till then, nor canst thou enjoy the benefits of the blessings which God hath bestowed upon thee till then. I want you to notice Mr. Worldly Wiseman is a professing Christian. You see that? He's talking to him about God, all the blessings and benefits that God would want you to enjoy. God wants you to be happy. You can't be happy as long as you've got that burden on your back, so you need to get the burden off your back. Christian says, that's what I'm trying to do, right? He says, that is which I seek for, even to be rid of this heavy burden. But get it off myself I cannot, nor is there any man in our country that can take it off my shoulders. Therefore, am I going this way as I told you that I may be rid of my burden, Mr. Worldly Wiseman replied, I beshrew him for his counsel. Now, here I'm skipping over some stuff. Um, he, uh, Christian tells him about his meeting with evangelists and says, it was Evangelist that told me this is the way to get rid of the, the burden. And so Mr. Worldly Wiseman says, well, you know, a pox be upon him for the counsel that he's given. Uh, th- that's not good advice. There is not a more dangerous and troublesome way in the world than is that into which he hath directed thee. And that thou shalt find if thou wilt be ruled by his counsel. In other words, you keep going down this path you are going to meet trouble like you've never seen. Thou hast met with something, as I perceive already, for I see the dirt of the slough of despond is upon thee, but that slough is the beginning of the sorrows that do attend those that go on in that way. Hear me, I am older than thou. Thou art like to meet with in the way which thou goest, wearisomeness, painfulness, hunger, perils, nakedness, sword, lions, dragons, darkness, and in a word, death. And what not, these things are certainly true, having been confirmed by many testimonies. And should a man so carelessly cast away himself by giving heed to a stranger? So Mr. Worldly Wiseman actually is a stranger. But he's presenting himself as a wise man. And he has a worldly sort of wisdom. He does, as a matter of fact, right? The sons of this age are sometimes shrewder than the sons of light. He has this kind of wisdom, this gravitas, I'm older than you, you're following the advice that's been given to you from somebody you don't even know, and it's going to lead you into all kinds of perils. This is not the way that you need to go. Christian says, why, sir, this burden on my back is more terrible to me than are all these things which you have mentioned. Nay, methinks I care not what I meet with in the way. If so be, I can also meet with deliverance from my burden. Now, Christian is replying in the right way here. He's saying, even if all of those perils come to meet me, it's worth it because this burden is worse than any of those things would be. So I I really, I just want to be rid of this burden. that's the way a Christian would respond, right? Is to say, it doesn't matter the cost. It doesn't matter the consequence. I just want to be free of this burden of guilt that lies upon me. Mr. Worldly Wiseman said, how camest thou by that burden at first? Christian replied, by reading this book in my hand. Mr. Worldly Wiseman said, I thought so. And it has happened unto thee as to other weak men, who meddling with things too high for them, do suddenly fall into thy distractions, which distractions do not only unman men, as thine, I, as thine, I perceive, have done thee, but they run them upon desperate ventures to obtain they know not what. The problem is that you're reading your Bible. The problem is that you are troubling your mind with things that are too high for you. You are bothered. You are worried. Uh, you are overwhelmed by many things that are just not necessary. Uh, you're much distracted and anxious because, because you're, you're trying to do things that you're not capable of. Now, one of the things you're going to see is that in some ways, Bunyan is going to relate Mr. Worldly Wiseman and the counsel he gives to the Roman Catholic system. It's not a tight Um, identification. So I'm not saying that that's the only way in which Bunyan meant this to be read, but it does appear to be kind of uh, adjacent to his counsel. Well, one of the things that Rome was famously saying during the medieval period is, you know, kind of don't trouble yourself. The scriptures belong to the church. The church interprets the scriptures for you. Don't be bothered by all of this theology that you're hearing. You know, these questions that these Protestants are raising, just trust the church. Just trust that the church as the, as the teaching uh, instrument of Christ is, is going to tell you the things that you should believe. And so there may be a little bit of that that Bunyan is meaning uh, to, to, to represent here. All right, now in this, in this part of the story, we need to talk a little bit more about this burden. Again, this is not where Christian is going to be rid of the burden, that's coming later. But we've, we've mentioned it before in a couple of lessons. We need to talk about it some more here. Christian is a Christian, he has been converted and yet he still carries a heavy burden. Now, some would argue that he is burdened because he remains unregenerate. That would be a fairly common kind of Calvinistic way of reading this story. But I believe that Bunyan is showing us that Christian has begun a life of Christian pilgrimage. He's repented. He's fled the city of destruction. He's pursuing the light. He's going to the gate. Whatever the state of his heart, that's not something you can know. Like If you're you're sitting there going, well, I, I just feel this great burden. Maybe I'm unregenerate. You're asking the wrong question. Because Christian is doing the very things he's supposed to do. He has turned his face away from the city of destruction. He's turned his face to the celestial city. He is following the instruction of the gospel. He is heeding the word of evangelists. He is studying the scriptures. He still is burdened, but the state of his heart is not something that he can know definitively. And even if he could, it doesn't change the reality of his present experience. So it's not a question of like, trying to peer into the inner counsels of his heart or into the eternal decrees of God. It's a matter of, what do I need to be doing right now? And he's doing those things. Now, I take this burden as the weight of guilt and shame and regret that he still carries. He's turned away from sin, but he still has not dealt with the guilt and shame of that sin. He doesn't yet have the peace and joy of his salvation. There is an initial hope That often is associated with turning to Christ, but the assurance of grace and the kind of abiding, stable peace and joy that we can have in Jesus is a fruit of Christian maturity. So, a lot of, and I've seen this a bunch of times as a pastor, maybe you experience this coming to faith. I've seen a lot of people who initially are very excited about the gospel, very thankful to turn to Jesus, have my sins forgiven, and then, like the next day, where's my joy? Where's my peace? why do I still feel ashamed? Why am I still struggling even weeks, months, years after my conversion? Why am I still carrying this great burden? Is there something else I need to do? And that's when someone like Mr. Worldly Wiseman comes along and says, well, yeah, I mean, like, you're going about this the wrong way. You're not supposed to be doing this. Like, I mean, the path you're following is really dangerous, and the book that you're reading is really confusing, and there's a much easier way, and we begin to look for that easier way. Remember the Lord's parable, When the word comes, then cometh the devil. I like the way the King James does that in the parable of the sower, right? When the word comes, then cometh the devil. So the seed that's sown on the wayside, as soon as the seed is sown, the devil comes in the form of the birds and eats the seed. And one of my mentors used to say, that's not just true of the seed sown on the wayside. That's true for all of us. When the word comes, then cometh the devil. Because the devil didn't have to pay any attention to you when you were an unbeliever. But when you become a believer, suddenly you get a lot of attention, right? And and you are going to experience challenges and discouragements um, that you never knew before you tried to follow the Lord. There are many trials, in fact, that a new believer faces that he did not know as an unbeliever. And the prospect of this new life, the prospect of pilgrimage, can be overwhelming. Not to mention the fact that you have just recently discovered your sinfulness. You've recently seen your sinfulness in a new way. That's why you've repented. That's why you've believed on Jesus. But you you still haven't fully dealt with what you've learned about yourself. Right? So like, praise God that Saul has believed in Jesus and is now a Christian. He's been baptized by Ananias. But what is he thinking about when he closes his eyes at night? He might be thinking about Stephen. He might be thinking about other Christians that he drug out of their homes and put in prison and put on trial He might be thinking about the the blasphemous votes that he took as a member of the council against Christians who were brought before him. And and there might be things that you still carry guilt and shame and regret for, and that's just part of the reality of the life of, uh, of a Christian. A convert is immediately called to a life of continual repentance and new obedience, and that feels overwhelming. He is still trying to reconcile himself to this new perspective on his former life and he is haunted by bad memories and bad habits and he's got new questions that have never been answered. Right? He doesn't know how to answer. He doesn't even know the questions to ask yet and now he's getting bombarded with all of these new things. The trials of a new believer are why many turn back and that's what you saw with Pliable last week. Pliable initially comes with joy, responds to the word, let's go to the celestial city, tell me all about it, it sounds wonderful, we fall into the slough of despond, forget about it, I'm going home, right, you keep all of the benefits, I'm going home, and that that is the seed sown on rocky soil, that they receive the word with joy, but as soon as trouble comes, they fall away, and that's the danger here, is Christian going to be uh, a convert like that, Christian says to Mr. Worldly Wiseman, I know what I would obtain. In other words, I know what I want. That's what he's saying. I know what I want. It is ease from my heavy burden. That's what I want. But Worldly Wiseman says, But why wilt thou seek for ease this way, seeing so many dangers attend it? Especially since, had thou but patience to hear me, I could direct thee to the obtaining of what thou desirest without the dangers that thou in this way wilt run thyself into. Yea, and the remedy is at hand. Besides, I will add, that instead of those dangers, thou shalt meet with much safety, friendship, and content. Why, in yonder village, the village is named Morality, there dwells a gentleman whose name is Legality, a very judicious man, and a man of a very good name, that has skill to help men off with such burdens as thine is from their shoulders. Yea, to my knowledge, he hath done a great deal of good this way. Aye, and besides, he hath skill to cure those that are somewhat crazed in their wits with their burdens. To him, as I said, thou mayest go and be helped presently. His house is not quite a mile from this place. And if he should not be at home himself, he hath a pretty young man to his son, whose name is Civility, that can do it to speak on as well as the old gentleman himself. There, I say, thou mayest be eased of thy burden, and if thou art not minded to go back to thy former habitation, as indeed I would not wish thee, thou mayest send for thy wife and children to this village, where there are houses now standing empty, one of which thou mayest have at a reasonable rate. Provision is there also cheap and good. And that which will make thy life the more happy is, to be sure that there thou shalt live by honest neighbors in credit and in good fashion. I mean, where's the downside? This sounds awesome. You know, like this road is nothing but trouble. There's sloughs and all kinds of problems. And he says there are dragons up ahead. I didn't even know I believed in dragons until I became a Christian. Now I know that they're real. And uh, and here there's a town a mile away with a man who can take the burden off my back. And his son, he and his son have helped so many people. And there's houses that are available. I can move right in. I can bring my wife, my kids. Everything's going to be great. I'll have good neighbors. This is going to be awesome. What is the temptation here? What is the temptation of morality, this town is morality, and civility, who is legality's son? Well, this is not describing a temptation to look to obedience to the law for one's justification. That's not not what's happening here. Instead, it is is, uh, a a temptation to take an easier path than the one that the gospel calls you to. The temptation is to reject the demands of the cross, The cross tells you to die daily to sin and embrace the discipline of grace by obeying God and pursuing Jesus. Legality in this story offers a form of disobedience rather than obedience in the place of grace. Do you see that? Now, I'm not going to argue that this is the only type of legalism that, that we can encounter. In fact, you're going to see some other versions of it later in the story. I'm trying to focus on the version that you've got here. But this is a type of legalism that a lot of people don't even realize is legalism. When they think of legalism, they think of a person who emphasizes obedience instead of grace. But in this case, the temptation of legalism is you don't have to worry about the obedience of sanctification because you're under grace. It's actually turning them aside, saying be content with morality, be content with civility, be content with being a good and honest person and living among good and honest people. Stop stressing about everything in the way that you are. Why do I need to kill sin daily and strive to change my character and habits? Because after all, I am a good person, law-abiding, polite, and upstanding citizen of the town of morality. It is legality and his son's civility that are resting in their justification and rejecting the obligation of sanctification by taking up the cross. Do you see that? By the way, like if you're thinking well then Bunyan was a legalist after all. Actually, Bunyan wrote some things about justification that sound positively antinomian. And I'm not saying he was an antinomian. I'm just saying like this is a man who knew how to preach a very free gospel. To the point that you would almost think that obedience is completely unnecessary or unimportant in the Christian life. Same author. What is he showing? He's saying the demands of discipleship involve following a path that will lead to many dangers and that is going to require you to persevere under a heavy weight until it can be relieved. It's going to be hard. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. But that's the wide path that Mr. Worldly Wiseman is offering to him. Um, Let me give you a quote here from uh, an author that I do not universally endorse, just like FYI, he was a New Orthodox theologian. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of you know who he was, uh, was executed by the Nazis during World War II. He said this in his classic work, The Cost of Discipleship. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He goes on later in the same... uh, uh, section grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow jesus christ it is costly because it costs a man his life and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life it is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner above all it is costly because it costs god the life of his son you were bought at a price and what has cost god much cannot be cheap for us Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. He's saying any price you're paying is, does not compare to the sacrifice Jesus made. Right, And understand that Bonhoeffer is speaking against the state Lutheran church that has capitulated to Hitler, that has followed the easy path of, of the spirituality of the church. And he's saying, it's not Christianity. This is not discipleship. This is not what following Jesus demands. What following Jesus demands will put your life in jeopardy. And of course, he lost his for that. What Mr. Worldly Wiseman is offering here is religion without a cross. And if Bonhoeffer's words sound legalistic to us, it may be that we have moved into the town of morality. And I'm saying that not because I think anybody in this church lives there. But because I think there are some reformed Christians that live in the town of morality that have a lot to say about grace, that have a lot to say about the gospel, and yet would would take Bonhoeffer's words in that quote or evangelist counsel to Christian here in just a moment in our story and say, that's legalism. That you're you're saying it costs us something. No, Jesus paid the whole price. Yes, of course, Jesus paid the whole price. (laughs) That's not the argument. Jesus also said, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. If that sounds legalistic to you, you might not be living where you think you are living. Christianity is not legal, civil, or even moral by worldly standards. Take your Bible. Let's, Let's look at this passage. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter is writing to Christians who are being persecuted. And notice what he says, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Does that sound legalistic to you? It's the Apostle Peter that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Speaking evil of you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Count the cost. Jesus says, if any man comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What does Jesus mean? You have to take up your cross daily, he says, Luke 9.23. Paul says, put to death that which is earthly in you. John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Our foes in this life are the world, the devil, and first and foremost, our own flesh. And to be a Christian means to declare war on yourself, on your sinfulness, on the world that is opposed to God, upon the evil one who would seek to lead you astray. You cannot just kind of go along. You can't can't be just a good moral person. In fact, if you are a faithful Christian, the world is not going to think you are a good moral person. They're going to think that you're a bad person. They are going to mistake your piety for piracy. They are going to think that you are disobedient that you are cantankerous, that you are a troublemaker. And from their standpoint, you will be if you're faithfully following Jesus. There's a much longer section here that I'm going to read. Uh, I only put just this one paragraph on the, on the slides. If you're following the notes uh, online, I, I put this in the notes, but even this is, is a reduction of the section in the, in the book. So maybe just listen as I read. So Christian turned out of the way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. But behold, when he was got now hard by the hill, it seemed so high. And also that side of it that was next, the wayside, did hang over so much that Christian was afraid to venture further, lest the hill should fall on his head. Wherefore, there he stood still and wotted not what to do. Do, do, do you, do you wot not what that is about? It means he doesn't know what to do, right? Okay. Also... His burden now seemed heavier to him than while he, was on, while he was in his way. There came also flashes of fire out of the hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burnt. Here, therefore, he did sweat and quake for fear. And now he began to be sorry that he had taken Mr. Worldly Wiseman's counsel. And with that, he saw Evangelist coming to meet him, at the sight of, whom, of also of whom he began to blush for shame. So Evangelist drew nearer and nearer. He looked upon him with a severe and dreadful countenance and thus began to reason with Christian did I not direct thee the way to the little wicket gate? How is it then that thou art so quickly turned aside, for thou art now out of the way? Christian said, I met a gentleman so soon as I had got over the slough of, slough of Despond, who persuaded me that I might, in the village before me, find a man that could take off my burden. What was he? He looked like a gentleman, and talked much to me, and got me at last to yield. So I came hither, but when I beheld this hill and how it hangs over the way, I suddenly made a stand, lest it should fall on my head. What said that gentleman to you? He bid me with speed get rid of my burden, and I told him it was ease that I sought. And, said I, I am therefore going to yonder gate to receive farther direction how I may get to the place of deliverance. So he said that he would show me a better way, and short, not so attended with difficulties as the way, sir, that you set me in, which way, said he, will direct you to a gentleman's house that hath skill to take off these burdens. So I believed him, and turned out of that way into this, if haply I might soon be eased of my burden. But when I came to this place and beheld things as they are, I stopped for fear, as I said, of danger, but I, know, but I now know not what to do. Then said Evangelist, Stand still a little, that I show thee the words of God. Then said Evangelist, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. He said, moreover, now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul hath no pleasure in him. He also did thus apply them. Thus thou art the man that running into this misery, thou hast begun to reject the counsel of the Most High and to draw back thy foot from the way of peace, even almost to the hazarding of thy perdition. Now you might think, boy, Evangelist is being really hard on him, but do you understand that's what's at stake? When you decide, I can follow Jesus and avoid all of the difficulties and demands that discipleship places upon me. I can be a good person. I can live in the city of morality. I can have good moral neighbors. I can trust Jesus as my Savior. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to have ease. What's actually happening there is you are following the road to perdition. And that's, that's what evangelist is pointing out. Then Christian fell down at his feet crying, Woe is me for I am undone at the sight of which Evangelist caught him by the right hand, saying, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Be not faithless, but believing. And Evangelist goes on to describe three great errors that Mr. Worldly Wiseman has led him into and then kind of unpacks those errors. He says, His turning thee out of the way, that's one, His laboring to render the cross odious to thee, that is, he is trying to suggests that the way that God has called you to walk is itself to be rejected. It's the same thing the serpent did in the garden. Oh, God's holding back something good for, from you. Well, in this case, God's requiring something terrible of you, making the cross odious. And third, His setting thy feet in the way that leadeth unto the administration of death. So He's not only led you out of the right way, He's led you into the wrong way, and He has made the cross of Christ that you are to carry um, offensive to you. He goes down uh, and, and, and talks about the ones that uh, Christian was being misled to. Evangelist says, He to whom thou wast sent for ease, being by name legality, is the son of the bondwoman, which now is, and is in bondage with her children, and is in a mystery, this Mount Sinai, which thou hast feared, will fall on thy head. That's the mountain that Christian has, you know, kind of, he's frozen underneath, feels like it's going to fall on top of him, lightning and fire, and, you know, it's, it's the Exodus 19 scene, right? And, he, and he's terrified, This legality, therefore, is not able to set thee free from thy burden. No man was as yet ever rid of his burden by him. No, nor ever is like to be. Ye cannot be justified by the works of the law. For by the deeds of the law, no man living will be rid of his burden. Therefore, Mr. Worldly Wiseman is an alien, and Mr. Legality is a cheat. And for his son's civility, notwithstanding his simpering looks, he is but a hypocrite and cannot help thee. Believe me, there is nothing in all this noise that thou hast heard of these sottish men, but a design, a design to beguile thee of thy salvation by turning thee from the way in which I had set thee. After this evangelist called aloud to the heavens for confirmation of what he had said, and with that there came words and fire out of the mountain under which poor Christian stood, which made the hair of his flesh stand up. The words were pronounced, As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. They are offering him the good way of just being a good person. Just kind of keep the the outward commandments, live in a moral town, be a good citizen. You can claim to be a Christian. You don't have to go to war against the flesh. You don't have to take up this cross and bear this burden all this way. Things can be much easier for you. Now, Bunyan here is playing off several texts. He's alluding to several texts um, that warn of abandoning Christ for the law. And you'll see that even some of your editions may have um, marginal notes or footnotes to the specific text he's alluding to. Uh, One thing that I think is important to point out here, because it's going to be important at several places in the narrative, is that this allegory should not be taken as a direct commentary on these passages. It is certainly not a careful exegesis of each of these texts. Uh, Galatians and Hebrews, for example, talking about the Judaizing error as we talk about it, or, or Jewish Christians who are turning back to the law. He's drawing from these passages, and in some cases, not all, but in some of these cases, he's using texts in a way that is different than the original context might have intended. But what he's doing is not biblical exposition. He's doing allegory. He's giving you the theme. This is very common in allegories, by the way, to make an allusion to a passage that's not necessarily the original primary meaning, but is consistent with the broader testimony of Scripture. There was a a temptation in the first century for some Jewish Christians to cling to their Jewish identity in order to be spared the persecution that was being directed against Christians in the first century. That's part of what's going on in Hebrews. That's why the Hebrews writer says you haven't yet resisted to the shedding of blood. What are you doing? You're giving up before the fun even gets started, right? The Jews were protected by the Roman Empire. The Jewish religion was given exemption from certain political and religious rights that were required of everybody else. The Christians did not have those protections. And so there were some Jewish Christians that were saying, hey, if we just kind of self-identify as Jewish, we realize we're Messianic Jews. We realize that, you know, we believe Jesus is is the Christ. He's come. We're not denying that. But if we just kind kind of hide in the Jewish community, then the Romans are not going to throw us into the arena. And the Hebrews writer is saying you can't do that. You have to be willing to die with Jesus. Now, is that exactly what's happening here? No, it's not exactly what's happening here. Is it consistent with the kind of temptation Christians facing? Absolutely. So don't just use the Pilgrim's Progress to kind of interpret your New Testament, but but use your Bible to interpret what's going on in the Pilgrim's Progress. The Judaizing error uh, talked about in Galatians, for example, involved in part ethnic pride in Jewishness, where you had Jewish Christians that were barring entry to the Gentiles until they identified as Jews. You know, you, you, it's good that you believe in Jesus, you've been baptized, but now you've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the dietary law. You've got to become a member of Israel to be part of spiritual Israel. And, and, and here, that, you know, that's not exactly what's going on with Christian. but, but the common point, the, com- the thing that they have together is that the Jews in that time were not realizing both Jews and Gentiles have shared humiliation in the cross of Christ. It doesn't matter whether I'm Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter whether I'm circumcised or uncircumcised. I'm called to the shame of the cross with my Gentile brothers and sisters. And that is the temptation that Christians have been being presented, is to turn away from that. Christians like Mr. Worldly Wiseman and Legality and Civility and the First Presbyterian Church of Morality have embraced a socially acceptable religion that colors inside the lines. That's what Christians is being offered And Bunyan knew something about discipleship that refuses to play nice with tyrants, even if those tyrants are bishops, archbishops, and local sheriffs. If you haven't read Return of the King, you need to get on with that. The world often confuses true Christian piety, as we said, for a form of piracy. We're saying amen, but the world around us thinks that we're saying arg. Christians should never... Be radical or re- revolutionary for the sake of causing trouble. But if you have a biblical backbone, then the world is going to think that you're both radical and revolutionary. And that will include the worldly elements in the church. There is not an easy path here. You know, like, I'm as post millennial as you get. But you just got to realize Jesus tells you to take up the cross and follow a path that that leads through trials and tribulation. And, And you are going to be opposed even by worldlings in the church like Mr. Worldly Wiseman. You're going to have to realize that sometimes some of your brothers and sisters, you're going to have to know who they are and realize, oh, oh, that's Bishop Worldly Wiseman. I don't need to listen to him. And you're not doing that just to be contentious, but he's going to think that you're being contentious. Now, Christian looked for nothing but death and began to cry out lamentably, even cursing the time in which he met with Mr. Worldly Wiseman, still calling himself a thousand fools for hearkening to his counsel. He also was greatly ashamed to think that this gentleman's arguments flowing only from the flesh should have the prevalency with him so far as to cause him to forsake the right way. This done, he applied himself again to evangelist in words and sense as follows, "'Sir, what think you? Is there any hope? May I now go back and go up to the wicked gate? Shall I not be abandoned for this and sent back from thence ashamed?' I am sorry I have hearkened to this man's counsel, but may my sin be forgiven. Then Evangelist said to him, Thy sin is very great, for by it thou hast committed two evils. Thou hast forsaken the way that is good, to tread in forbidden paths. Yet will the man at the gate receive thee, for he has good will for men. Only, said he, take heed that thou turn not aside again, lest thou perish from the way when his wrath is kindled, but a little He's not saying you only get one chance to mess up. Because if that were the case, Christian, he, like, he would never make it to the city. Because this story, you're going to see him fall short again and again and again. And he's going to, he's going to make all kinds of mistakes. He's, he's, he's going to constantly be, have to be course corrected back into the way. But the point is, don't take this for granted. Don't just assume that because you've left the city of destruction, you're safe. Don't just assume that because you have a copy of the book in your hand that tells you about the blessings of the celestial city, everything's going to be fine. It's going to be smooth sailing from here. No, recognize the danger of apostasy. Recognize the real possibility that we would turn aside out of the way. Some people seem to think that feeling guilty is a terrible thing. And as a pastor, you know, like, I've had so many people comment, like, I'm really, I'm really feeling guilty. I'm just feeling terrible. I'm so sorry. Like, what's going on? Well, you know, like I'm watching pornography eight hours a day, and I'm getting drunk every weekend, and like things are falling apart with my wife, and I'm neglecting my kids. It's like, I think feeling guilty is probably a good thing. I think that's, you know, like I, I I hope you feel terrible because what you're doing is terrible. Like, what if feeling guilty is a good, godly thing? What if it's appropriate? What if it's productive? We should feel guilty if we are guilty. We should feel bad when we do wrong. We don't want it to be easy to sin. We want it to be a very unpleasant experience. We want to have the experience of saying, ow, I don't want to do that again. That was foolish. So Christian is beating himself up and and I think some would come along and just say, oh, it's okay, it's okay. Evangelist does not say it's okay. He says, it will be okay. It will be okay. You're back in the right way you're still going to be received at the wicked gate. But but realize what happened. Realize what could have happened. And don't do this again. Pay attention to where you're walking because this is a serious thing. Does indifference to sin glorify God? Is he glorified when we shrug off our stupidity and stubbornness and simply appeal to our justification? No. God is glorified by our repentance. Repentance. God's glorified in that. That's what we were talking about this morning. Like the fruit on the tree looks like repentance. The fruit on the tree looks like humility. The fruit on the tree looks like saying, I'm I'm a thousand fools for listening to Mr. Worldly Wiseman. Actually, actually you're not. Because if you were a fool, you would never realize how foolish it was to listen to him. Right? The the fool is the one who never realizes how foolish that was. How else are we going to learn to do better? Pain is instructive and it deters foolishness. I mean, let me show you this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We've got just a few minutes left, but we've got time to do this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. There is a danger here, and I think that Bunyan actually illustrates it well in the way that he kind of writes this dialogue. Let me just point you to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. Some commentators think this is a completely different situation than what we read about in 1 Corinthians 5. I think it's the same person. It doesn't really matter. There's someone in the Corinthian church who was disciplined at Paul's instructions, Who has repented? I think it's the incestuous man. You can have a different thought if you want. But whoever this is, he's repented. But now the burden of his shame over this sin is so great. Paul realizes there is a danger that if he's not reintegrated into the church, he could could fall away from that. So he says this, verse 3, I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. One of the ways that Satan unsettles the saints is by the kind of discouragement that lies in the aftermath of great sin. What I, what I appreciate about how Paul walks through this is he doesn't deny this man had grieved the body. In fact, he says, no, he has grieved the body. He hasn't grieved me. Like This wasn't, this wasn't a personal offense against me, but he has wronged you, he, not to be too severe. He's wronged you. When a brother does the kinds of scandalous sin that this brother had, he wrongs the local church. He wrongs his brothers and sisters. Some of you have been in churches that you've never seen church discipline ever applied. And in some cases, it was because church discipline was never applied. And in some cases, it was always applied and only applied behind closed doors. What good would that do this brother? What good would that do this, the, the body that he was a part of? No, he, Paul says he's, he's harmed the body, and the majority has inflicted punishment on him. Oh, we, we don't want to think about discipline as punishment, even though that's what the Bible calls it. Like, punishment just seems bad, it sounds hateful, it's just way too severe. Actually, Paul says, I told you to do that to see whether you would be obedient in all things. It's easy to be obedient in the things that you want to do. It's easy to, do, to be obedient in, in fulfilling those commands that don't cost you anything. But standing up to a brother and sister and saying, it's because we love you that you can't eat the Lord's Supper with us. That's hard. That is not fun. Like, we weep when we do that. And it's because we love, right? Right? And then on the backside, you don't say, oh, it's fine. It's not fine, but it's going to be okay. There's forgiveness, there's comfort, there's encouragement, there's reassimilation, reunion, reconciliation within the body, lest we get swallowed up with too much sorrow. And that was the danger there. I think Christians' conversation with evangelists here is a great example of this. Do not cease to pray to the Lord, repent renew your commitment to obedience that's what you do in the aftermath of a fall let me show you i, I think we got time let me show you these other two passages real quickly second Samuel, or excuse me first samuel chapter 12 this is in the aftermath of Saul's coronation as the first king of Israel but the people still have not kind of come to terms with the the error of asking for a king for the reasons that they did and the way that they did at the time that they did and so Samuel is calling them to account notice I am in the wrong book of the Bible. That's 1 Kings. 1 Samuel chapter 12, starting at verse 18. Samuel called to Yahweh, and Yahweh sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared Yahweh and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to Yahweh your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Then Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following Yahweh, but serve Yahweh with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For Yahweh will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased Yahweh to make you His people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against Yahweh in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear Yahweh and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. That is almost exactly this conversation between evangelists and Christian. Do you see that? And it strikes just the perfect balance of saying, don't pretend like this wickedness was anything other than wickedness. Don't pretend like you should feel anything other than guilt and shame about that. But God has forgiven you. And now, how should you respond? Repent and renew your commitment to the Lord and be faithful to God. The, The next decision you make is rarely the last decision you make. And you need to make better decisions moving forward. But beware, you continue down the path that you started upon and you'll be swept away. That's what Samuel says. It's really good instruction. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 141 and verse five, this is when I pray regularly. I want encourage you to incorporate in your prayers. Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me, it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. May God give me people that love me enough to tell me when I'm being stupid. Right? May God send evangelists with a severe countenance to say, this isn't the right road, where are you going? I thought you wanted to go to the wicked gate. This isn't the way to get there what are you doing here? We need those kind of people in our lives. Godly men who will love us and who will beat us and who will bless us by their love and encouragement and prayers for our repentance and greater faithfulness. All right. So uh, again, we skipped over parts of the narrative, parts of the dialogue. I would encourage you, even if you're not reading the story regularly, um, but if you've got a copy of the book and you're open to that, Maybe what you want to do is after each class, go back and reread the section that we discussed. And in this case, you'll find a little more uh, there, but uh, but we've covered most of the substance. Now, next week, Lord willing, uh, Christian is going to get to the wicket gate, and he is going to enter into the house of the interpreter. We'll spend at least two lessons there. But remember, March 3rd, first Sunday of the month, we'll be doing Q&A. So we'll have the two lessons in the house of the interpreter uh, at the end of February and then the second second week in March, okay? But that's the time that we have today. I hope that this is encouraging to you. I hope it's helpful to you. Um, if it's not, you can let me know. I'll be glad to try and make adjustments to it. But, uh, uh, but I, I really think this is a marvelous story, and I would commend it to you. I think it's a good one to read and reread and read with your kids. I think it'll be a blessing to your soul if you do. All right, let's bow together and pray. Gracious God, we are thankful for the blessing of this tale. We're thankful for our brother John Bunyan and for the way that you worked in his life and uh, leaving us such a story, oh God, that so beautifully symbolizes our own experience Uh, As pilgrims uh, journeying to the celestial city, we pray, O God, that we would not be turned aside uh, from the demands of the cross by the allure of a mere morality and uh, form of obedience that is without godliness, but that you would lead us to embrace the difficulty and danger of a life of discipleship and to do so gladly, O Lord, that you would bring us faithful men like evangelists who would deal with us uh, sternly when we turn aside from the way and that you would give us hearts to receive that reproof and to repent and stay upon the good and right way that your word and spirit lead us upon. Bless us now throughout this Lord's day with joy and peace through your son. We pray that we would feast and fellowship in a way that gives honor and glory to you and encouragement to our souls. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.